It is July 20th. Welcome to Real Talk, friends. Ryan Jesperson here with you. We've got a great show in store. Samuel G. Brooks behind the controls today. Sarah Hoyles has the day off. We're looking to you right out of the gates to chime in on a question that will become relevant in an interview about half an hour into today's show. So whether you're whether you're listening now live or whether you may even jump ahead, if, if you're eager to get to a conversation on flat tax, why not swing by my Twitter profile first at Ryan Jesperson and and cast your vote? Would you support Alberta returning to a flat tax system? Everybody paying 10 percent provincial income tax or whatever the number would be if it proved to stimulate the economy. We, we pushed it out about 13 minutes ago. We've got about 260 votes, 266 to be exact. So far, 58% of respondents say no. They would prefer, well, I don't want to put words in their mouths, but let's assume they would prefer the so-called progressive income tax introduced by the Notley NDP back in 2015. 58% saying no, thank you. 30%, well, just under 31 you can tell I'm trying to game the numbers because this is where I'm at. I'm on the flat tax system. I support that. 31%. I'll tell you why. And some people are going to be pissed off at me, but that's my opinion. And I promise to not get pissed off at you for your opinion. How about we all agree that we can talk about this and talk it out? 31% say yes. And then 11% early on say, well, it depends. And they elaborate below. I see my pal Max Fawcett. Max doesn't even like the conversation because we're going to be talking to an economist that authored the report for the Fraser Institute. And, and, and Max has no time for things coming out of the Fraser Institute. It's OK. Some of us aren't afraid to listen to people with different perspectives. And let me also cheekily point out that I think we're probably the only talk show in Canada today that's going to talk to voices from the Pembina Institute and the Fraser Institute back to back. That's right. Back to back jacks on real talk where you'll get real talk five days a week. It's presented, of course, this show and everyone we do by the team at Bitcoin. Well, I know you have questions about crypto. Everybody's got questions about crypto. Your question might be, what the hell even is this? Or why do people even care about this? Or why is this even a thing? All the way up to, hey, how is the Lightning Network going to impact security on the next level of the... And then you can tell I'm out of my depth. But the learning curve is manageable because I talked to the team, the real-life humans at Bitcoin Well. They've helped me sort out and better understand crypto so I can make my own informed decisions on what I'm doing with investments and savings and looking forward. And I'm certainly not telling you to sell your house and invest in crypto. But if you have questions about financial sovereignty... And the future of, well, pretty much commerce and everything else, look up the team at Bitcoin Well into the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Word of the Gourd. What a great Twitter handle. Word of the Gourd this morning says, Ryan, a flat tax is regressive. And it could never, ever by itself stimulate any economy. We'll find out. We'll see what the report says. Justin says, well, this is two different questions because I've asked you this morning, would you support Alberta returning to a flat tax? And I'd love to hear from from Canadians and other jurisdictions, too. Let me know what you think. How do you structure it in your province or territory? How do you determine what's a, a fair method of taxation? 
I said, if it would stimulate the economy, would you support a flat tax? And Justin says, well, that's two different questions. Like, would you support free ice cream for everybody if it made me six inches taller? He says, yes, but I'm going to need to see a chart or a graph or something that disproves existing logic and research that doesn't show causation between the two. Here's the thing about this interesting report. This has just been released this morning. Uh, This is from the team at Fraser Institute. It's an economist out of McEwen University. We're going to be talking to him, as mentioned, in about now 25 minutes. What happens if Alberta returns to the flat tax system? And they've crunched the numbers and they've taken a look. And we'll see what that what that presentation looks like. So Justin says he'd need to see causation. I think we can all agree uh, that we could all probably get behind free ice cream. If Justin would want to be six inches taller, maybe that's good for him. This would probably play into our conversation yesterday with Dr. Karen Messing, right, out of Quebec, the University of Quebec at Montreal that was talking about, you know, workplace uh, workplaces, how they can they can be a, a little bit less friendly to women with regards to the type of equipment or, or, or even the ergonomics involved with things like like desk chairs or tools. Or we heard from surgeons yesterday, women that perform surgeries that were letting us know, hey, hey, you know, there are surgical tools that either don't work or they don't work as well. Uh, they're, they're ergonomically designed for men, but but now entering the market, there are some tools specifically designed for women. It was a fascinating spinoff from yesterday's conversation. Those of you that let us know about your own personal workspaces and how they either did fit you, so to speak, or how they didn't fit you. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, you have to watch that interview yesterday. She's a she's a professor emeritus of ergonomics. Fascinating stuff from Dr. Messing. It actually prompted a, a great email. This from Mary Louise, who wrote into the show. You can get us to talk at RyanJesperson.com. Mary Louise says, I worked for a large organization for over 20 years. We all had the same chair, regardless of height or weight. Management just didn't seem to care that we were all different. We had different requirements. Their solution, if you wanted something outside the norm, get a doctor's note. Mary Louise said, I had to get a doctor's note for a cordless mouse. What a waste of time and money. That from Mary Louise, who signs off a real talker Patreon supporter. At a girl. Thanks, Mary Louise. We sure appreciate that. Back to the question on flat tax. Yeg Beer Judge says a flat tax that stimulates the economy is a myth. It's just another piece of the debunked trickle down theory that has ravaged low income people at the expense of the ultra wealthy since Ronald Reagan and Brian Mulroney. That's the assertion from people that would not support a flat tax from people that would support the progressive tax that a province like Alberta currently has in place. They would say that the wealthy can afford to pay more. And it's not fair for everybody to pay 10% of flat tax applied to all incomes, right? It's not fair because 10% of 25,000 a year or 10% of 40,000 a year is disproportionate to 10% of 285,000 a year or 3.5 million a year. Others might argue, and it could be potentially be described as a swiss cheese type argument in other words holes all the way through it because the angles of approach can pick away at the assertion that well there's nothing more fair than the same number applied to everybody 10 percent is 10 percent is 10 percent now of course the reality is that were the province to revert to or to return to a 10 percent flat tax it would hurt provincial coffers the province would collect less tax revenue 
But the argument would be that it would stimulate the economy and ultimately would be better for Albertans and ultimately for Alberta's Treasury. So we'll get into this. Keep the comments coming. Please do swing on by and vote on the Twitter poll. Wine Times. I mean, look at this. Look at our audience. We've got Yeg Beer Judge and Wine Times responding back to back. Look at this. Pambina and Fraser Institute, Beer and Wine. Everybody gathering together on Real Talk and Conversation. Wine Times says if it reduced user fees, freaking everywhere. And we're talking utility delivery fees. If it attracted and then paid teachers and nurses, if it helped Albertans and businesses and led to $10 a day daycare, sure. Wine Times goes on to say increase MLAs and and, and cabinet salaries or, or pay for another doomed project. Hard no. And Sax, Saxamofo Davis says, oh, Jespo, you and your crazy flat tax schemes and uses this meme from Arrested Development. You know, other people have tried a flat tax. Maybe we should. Well, did it work for those people? No, it never does. I mean, these people somehow delude themselves into thinking it might, but it might work for us. Nice meme from Arrested Development. You know where this all started with me? Back in the talk radio days, I mean, terrestrial radio, before I went from broadcast to podcast, somebody put me on the spot on a live call and said, if you were premier, what would you do? And I thought, well, I better come up with something smart and I better come up with something quick on the fly. And I said I would introduce a sales tax in Alberta because I think it's important. And ultimately, I think that a premier in Alberta will have to do that. And I said, but here's the trade off. You introduce a sales tax in Alberta and you balance it out with a flat tax, a flat income tax at, say, 10 percent. Some people blew a gasket, and that's totally fine because they said you're actually double punishing lower income earners, right? The province collects less, ta- less, ta- less tax revenue, 10% for the highest income earners, not nearly enough. That's the assertion. And then a sales tax, a consumer tax, a consumption tax, well, it impacts people at the lower end of the earning scale, More so than those at the higher end, unless you're talking maybe about things like luxury taxes and the like. And I thought that that was an interesting interpretation, and this is the type of thing that I've thought about. And so I'm wide open to hearing about this argument, this report, and that's coming up in about 20 minutes time. Sam, I can see this has caught your interest. I can see you're intrigued by the conversation. Is this something that you've chewed on? I mean, is this something that you put some thought into? Do you have a position on it? I've I've thought about sales taxes a lot. I think it's you know probably like absolutely Alberta needs a sales tax. I'm not going to go any further than that. Alberta needs a sales tax. Also, you know the thing about things like consumption taxes and sales taxes is that there's mechanisms that you can bake into them to make them less regressive, right? Yep. So when we talk about it impacting people at the bottom, I mean even look at the way that we administer GST. You don't pay GST on food. You don't pay GST on you know important household items you shouldn't pay gst on menstrual products well and you can also get refunds yes exactly and you know whereas a flat tax is like it it kind of feels like this solution that 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 makes nobody happy because like as you asserted you either set a flat tax at a rate where it is low enough that the lowest 
earners, the, the, the people that are the most vulnerable in society can afford to pay it, but then you don't really generate any meaningful revenue out of it. So the trade-off has to be for government. Government has to believe that it'll kickstart the economy enough to make it worth it in the long yeah, run. Yeah, but then, I mean, the, you know, and then, and then on the high-end, the high-end earners are, you know, paying far less than they should be right now, and, and it creates another revenue hole. So I just, I'm very much into progressive taxation. Um, can we also say yeah. that that's a matter of opinion? Sure. Like, for people to say, and, and this is, I feel, you know what I feel like I'm doing? I feel like I'm walking around the smoldering grounds of a wildfire. <laughs> like the fire, I feel like the fire is burned through, but there's still some, there's still some ash blowing around and there's still sparks. And I feel like I'm carrying a couple jerry cans in my hand as I'm making these arguments. But I will say, uh, like it or not, it is, a, it is a matter of opinion. And don't stamp this on my tombstone, but it's a matter of opinion that 10% is not enough tax for the wealthy to pay or that the wealthy don't pay enough tax. Now, I know people are going to lose it and say the, 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 the uber wealthy can afford to pay way more. Jeff Bezos going to space, he can afford to pay more income tax. And you'd be hard pressed to make the argument that big, massive, multinational corporations, the biggest companies in the world do pay enough tax because even in Alberta, even across Canada, we'll see massive corporations with huge profits that are getting major tax breaks. We see incentives offered by government that do not translate into jobs, that do not translate into economic stimulus. Just look what's happened with oil and gas, right? Look where in Canada is right now. The, the hint, not in Canada anymore, right? Did they see some, some tax breaks? Did they see some incentives? They sure as hell did. And some of the news coverage over the past couple of weeks has been Alberta's premier and, and, and the, the reporting in the editorials has been Alberta's premier begs oil and gas companies to plug profits back into things like job incentives and economic stimulus. The Alberta's premier is trying to convince these oil and gas leaders that have seen good faith from the Alberta government to return the goodwill, so to speak. But that's no, not always the way it goes. But when we talk about personal income tax, devil's advocate, sure. But can you automatically assert that someone is or is not paying enough income tax or is it a matter of opinion? Maybe that should be a separate Twitter poll. But right now, we'll stick with the one that we've got going on. Would you support Alberta returning to a flat tax system if it proved to stimulate the economy? The most interesting poll result I saw as soon as I hit send on it, as soon as I hit tweet, we had three votes and two of the votes were yes. Yes, they would support the flat tax. So, so, so with three votes, it was 66% in favor. Now, since we've started talking with 468 votes, 62% say no. The yeses are slightly dropping. The yeses are chipping away. Now at 29.9, we'll call it 30%, and 8% of you say it depends. We'll get to more of that in just a little bit. First, we're going to talk about healthy cities in the era of doorstep delivery. That's coming up in just a moment. Right now, I want to remind you that the team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge is ready right now. Dealerships don't have to be open. I mean, they are open as we speak, and they're probably open as you're listening to this later in the day, but they're always open 
happen online. If you go to ryanjesperson.com and you click on our sponsors tab, you'll find the logos for all of the Real Talk builders. These are the organizations that have stepped up to make sure that we can have these conversations, important ones every day. There's St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Right at the top, you click on the link and there they are. New vehicles, pre-owned. You can schedule your service appointment. You can buy a vehicle from home. Great incentives on the Jeep brand all the way through. Look at this, even a live chat option if you'd like to chat with a sales or service associate. St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge, always open online via the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Also, big shout out to the teams at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. You show up there at Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, or Baseline Road. You drop my name, Jespo, or Real Talk, and you're going to get two cheeseburgers for five bucks or two doubles for seven. And I probably don't have to go on and on and on about all the amazing cool treats they've got. The Jespo recommendation today, because I heard that it's a thing and I can't even believe it. I haven't tried it yet, but I'll recommend it blind is the Kit Kat Blizzard. You can find them at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Make sure you tell them that Jespo sent you. Okay, so here we go. This is it's fair to say that consumer habits have changed dramatically over the past number of years. Is that fair to say with you, whether it's the way that you get your food, whether it's the way that you order your books, whether it's the way that you top up on household supplies, more and more people around the world are ordering online and having the products delivered to their door. It's the so-called doorstep delivery era. So what does a healthy city look like in the era? Building healthy cities in the doorstep delivery era, sustainable urban freight solutions from around the world, a new report for the Pembina Institute. That's where Saeed Kadura is a senior analyst, kind enough to join us this morning. Welcome to the program and thanks for being here on Real Talk. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's uh, it's definitely a pleasure to be here. Uh, Saeed, I know, I, you know, we, our family, we try to find this balance, right, between shopping local, supporting local, and, and also uh, acknowledging in some cases what's just the most convenient way to go. And we've tried to find this balance, but our family, certainly a participant in what you'd call the doorstep delivery era. How about you? Uh, I think most definitely. Uh, and uh, what we've been seeing in the pandemic is that buying local and online shopping could be the same thing you know uh, anytime we're on uber eats you're trying to find those uh like one-of-a-kind restaurants mom and pop restaurants um obviously sometimes uh, we veer into the, the the land of fast food but uh, that's out of desperation usually <laughs> yeah that's right well listen we're really excited to have you here because it was just a few years ago that you were named as as one of corporate night's top 30 under 30 leaders uh, across the country in sustainability and i know that a lot of your research has covered decarbonization of the electricity transportation and building sectors and so how i mean it might seem obvious but how does that fit into this report? I mean, you approach this from the angle, I'm assuming, of emissions, vehicle traffic, waste. Did you talk about packaging? I mean, there's probably a lot of ways that we can approach this. Of course. Um, so really, uh, uh, my work at the Pemina Institute revolves around uh, around the energy sector. So when we're looking uh, at uh, at the doorstep, 
delivery uh, kind of phenomenon here. Uh, we focused on transportation emissions, uh, the demand for transportation energy, and of course, uh, the emissions that come out as a result. Uh, we veered a little bit as well into uh, looking at things such as uh, social equity, environmental, uh, social justice, uh, as well as uh, safety. I mean, more trucks on the road, uh, of course, creates more of a risky uh, environment for pedestrians. So I uh, tried to really take a, look, a, a little bit of a holistic look centering on the energy uh, perspective first but uh, veering on on really what are some of the elements that that make up uh, make up our cities how our cities are designed the curb space the the, the cars on the road and some of the policies that help us just uh, be a little bit forward thinking in how our cities should look like 10 years from now did the pandemic um, I, there, were, there were kind of interesting parallel storylines weren't there because in some cases around the world people would say when 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 the globe and whenever I use words like shut down or lockdown, we get emails from people saying, please be accurate. There was never actually a full lockdown. And I can see the point. There was still activity. There was still commerce. People could still move freely. But the fact of the matter is, whether you were talking about canals in Venice or whether you were talking about dolphin populations in certain places off the coastal waters of Japan, or there were a ton of other examples, people were saying nature is healing. The planet is taking a breath and there is evidence of the planet. Uh, you know, there there are certain areas where there, there was environmental recovery. And then on the flip side, way more delivery activity, right? Way more online sales. H- how did you reconcile that? I mean, did you take a look at those two storylines? So I would say, I think the, the biggest differentiator, um, I mean, when we look at climate change, it's really a global phenomenon, right? Uh, now, the the impact of online shopping had a really drastic effect on our cities, which is our dense urban environments, which are usually a, a lot harder to uh, kind of, uh, I don't, I don't want to say uh, return back to normal. I mean, we've got pavements, we've got buildings. Uh, I've seen examples where nature has, has, you've seen some animals like make it to the city and people got excited, like, oh, nature is taking over. That's great. Uh, but really, when we look at our dense, uh, dense building environments, environments or dense cities, uh, what we saw is actually a big, uh, more of a shift to, to more vehicles, um, a little bit more of a, a, a little bit more air pollution, of course, not when everybody was still driving, but delivery trucks are some of the more polluting, uh, polluting uh, kind of vehicles out there. So I think, um, I think on the bigger picture there has been a sense of recovery uh but kind of like this environmental recovery uh but i think the impacts that we've seen from things like online shopping once things go back to normal they really are here to stay some studies have shown that um the our shopping habits the, the online shopping habits that we've that we've taken on are really going to become permanent uh studies from the uk show that 75 percent of consumers said that really their online shopping habits that they've adopted in the pandemic are here to stay so it's a little bit about kind of not just focusing on the 12 months or 24 months that, that we just experienced, but really thinking about what has the pandemic accelerated, such as this shift towards more online shopping, and what are the ways that they're going to affect our cities and what are the ways that we can recover as well for, from those really moving forward. Did you see when, when your team took a look at this, did, did you see with regards to an influx of delivery trucks or increased traffic, did you note um, tangible impacts on cities? Like, Could you point to an example where you would say uh, this was not a factor before, but but post pandemic, this is a factor now? 
I think most definitely. And uh, I would point to the very obvious one, which is the evolution of the curbside space, uh, right? Which is the space between the street and the storefront. Uh, before the pandemic, this was just a place where people used to walk and where cars used to park. And that's great. Uh, but what we're seeing right now is a much more dynamic perspective uh, of what a curbside looks like. So uh, curbside space now isn't just uh, isn't just shared by delivery trucks. I mean, we also have uh, ride sharing. Uh, ride sharing vehicles use the space. Uh, curbside pickup now is is becoming a big thing in a lot of companies. I think Target has seen their curbside pickup offering grow by seven times. Uh, of course, it maybe wasn't a big thing that they were thinking about before, but it's still a big growth. And I think also one thing that's worth noting is that uh, this idea of patio restaurants really has been uh, important for the success uh, and recovery of some businesses. So what we're seeing isn't just that the curbside itself is changing, but it's actually turning into this evolving space that's dynamic and and mixed use. Uh, And we really have to think about um, how the space really is being used and how uh, regulation in cities is allowing different types of vehicles to use the space uh, and uh, um, and really enable those types of different activities as they evolve. You're bang on. I mean, I, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of examples right now off the top of my head across the country where, um, you know, some some uh, typical traffic lanes, in other words, vehicle traffic have been closed down for bike lanes or increased pedestrian spaces. We've seen exactly. some some areas in downtown cities that have been vehicle thoroughfares that, that have been completely shut down to traffic and turned into these wonderful, almost gathering spaces, like you said, with the patio areas that have allowed for recovery of some hospitality institutions or some of our favorite exactly. restaurants and hotels. And I think for a lot of people, it's going to be difficult to surrender those, isn't it? People aren't, aren't going to have an appetite to surrender that because they've become used to it. So what does this mean? I mean, does this mean that we're, we require kind of like a, a dramatic reimagining of, of municipal design? I think um, I would say a dramatic reimagining is is pretty accurate. And uh, it's I mean, there's good news and there's bad news. Right. Uh, the bad news is that whatever whatever we do, whatever we take on in terms of both managing emissions, but also managing the rising number of trucks on the road needs to be adopted pretty dramatically. Uh, if we think about emissions, 90% of uh, uh, of transportation-based energy still relies on fossil fuels. Uh, in Canada specifically, our transportation emissions is the second largest emission, uh, emitting sector, uh, no surprise after the oil and gas sector. Uh, and goods movement specifically uh, contributes to around, uh, it's actually the second highest emitting subsectors, so transportation for moving goods. So I think we, whatever we do needs to be dramatically scaled. Now, the good news here is that these solutions, the solutions to these problems exist, and they have been in play around the world for decades now. Uh, so things like low emission zones that allow uh, um, uh, non either non-emitting or low-emitting vehicles to enter smaller delivery vehicles, for example, have been in play in London and Paris and are very popular in Europe. Uh, uh, we already have uh, zero emission vehicles that exist. It's just about really cities investing both in the funding as well as the regulatory reform to make these solutions actually scale up and adoptable. And for us to really think, how could we adopt those from the perspective of city planning uh, it, it, to start with and not really look at them as the end of pipe, uh, really solutions to problems that have emerged. So, Said, are we talking about, I mean, is it is it as simple as in, instead of a big, you know, GMC five? ton cube van you've got 11 teslas 
doing the delivery? I mean, is that what we're talking about? I mean, there's really three buckets of, of solutions. One of them is exactly like you described, zero emission vehicles. So what I say is we want to replace bigger emitting trucks with smaller, cleaner vehicles. So that's either smaller or cleaner or smaller and cleaner. So uh, zero emission trucks uh, when possible. Uh, also, not necessarily Teslas, but we can go even smaller. So uh, delivery cargo bikes, as an example, which are these uh, electric assisted uh, tricycles that uh, have a have a basket on the front. These are becoming really popular for uh, for making last mile deliveries specifically, and they're a great replacement for trucks. Uh, so one aspect of that is really this. Um, replacing those trucks with cleaner vehicles. The other one is also around rethinking when we make deliveries and also how those deliveries are being distributed. I mean, imagine if uh, garbage trucks collected garbage in the middle of rush hour, that would be inconvenient, right? So uh, some cities have actually piloted doing deliveries to grocery stores after 9 p.m., times where the, the traffic is a little bit less, that leads to less congestion, and of course, less cruising time trying to find parking, which leads to less emissions. So so there's, there's a couple of ways that we can tackle that, not necessarily just on the vehicle side, but also thinking about how we make deliveries sure. uh, as well. So this is, I mean, like similar to, to lawmakers in, in California um, saying, hey, listen, with, with these massive strains on the power grid, we're asking everybody to run your dishwashers or run your you know washers and dryers after 5 p.m. outside of peak mm-hmm. hours. That same sort of idea, mm-hmm. but transplanted into a delivery methodology. I would say I would say almost exactly yes, of course. And, and the idea behind getting people to shift uh, their their electricity use to different times is it's uh, it's cheaper to produce the electricity. Then it also creates less emissions because you're depending less on what we call peaker plants that use fossil fuels. So the idea is the same. In this case, uh, what you're doing is you're you're thinking about your 24-hour day, thinking about when is the best time to perform this activity in a way that it's cheaper and also emits less. So. I I would say that's a, a great parallel to draw from. Does it? Do you typically see evidence that people get on board with this? Like, I guess you you, you don't have to sell the public on things like, uh, you know, uh, would would you rather have more available patio space, or would you rather, you know, would would you prefer to have fewer delivery trucks downtown at noon? Everyone's going to say, well, yeah, sure, it all sounds great, right? But but the business owner the business owner is going to sit there and, and say, yeah, but but I need the courier here right now, or I've got you know Icelandic cod coming in fresh from the airport or flash frozen let's say and and, but it needs to get here right now because my seafood special starts tonight and i need the (laughs) delivery immediately right you've got to you've got to get this would i mean these may be small things and they may be described as inconveniences or you need to be able to pivot but at the same time you would need the public on board right There, there needs to be even sometimes we might even call it a political will or a societal will or you know does that exist do you think so there's a couple of things there. Uh, I think every problem it kind of ha- could have its own unique solution, right? It's not that we ha- want to implement uh, everything for everybody. So uh, from a business owner's perspective, of course, the motivations are going to differ. What we've seen from uh, so you remember I was saying some of these pilots have actually been in place. So there are there are analyses and results on how effective this has been. And what we've seen is it's actually saved some businesses uh, uh, money. It's been more convenient for people to get their deliveries um, at different times. So it's really, I would say it really depends on 
on on the case. But what we found is typically, and one of the reasons why we talk sometimes about a green recovery is that a green recovery is it could be considered uh, in some situations more equ- equitable. Uh, the the results that we've been seeing is that businesses are able to operate more efficiently um, to get their deliveries. I think without uh, without necessary delay, more trucks on the road does mean more congestion. So a study from uh, from the Smart Freight Center in Ontario found that they're able to make deliveries more quickly when they're delivering off-peak. They did an off-peak pilot, uh, I believe, uh, in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area. Uh, and they found that it was actually more efficient. So I think... If we want to talk about the political will, um, it's not a very contentious idea to want to help businesses to operate more efficiently. And I think you touched on a really important point, and it's the fact that uh, really the silver key to making a lot of these solutions happen is what we call uh, public-private partnerships, which is essentially jargon for cities and companies working together. Uh, So if you have cities really creating the funding and regulatory environment that's going to enable these pilots to operate efficiently, uh, and companies coming on board to say, you know what, this is something that I'm willing to test to see if this works, Uh, not only is it going to give us a, a chance to reduce some of the impacts, but it's also going to give us learnings about how to improve, how to make it better, and to adopt different solutions. So it's really so that's really the key around companies and cities working together. And then I think if there is a there is a positive impact, that uh, it's just natural that it's going to be adopted. We're talking to Saeed Kadura, uh, contributor, author of this report for the Pemada Institute with partners, the National Association of City Transportation Officials and Bloomberg Associates. Saeed, you know, whenever we talk about uh, it seems to me I shouldn't say whenever, but when, when we're talking about reports like this, people will oftentimes describe them as an attack on someone. Right. So right now people may describe this as and I'm not saying this. I mean, I'm having a little fun with you, but people will say, well, this is an attack on truckers. No, this is an attack on the transportation industry you know in so many ways as in five minutes when i talk about a flat tax it will be an attack on the poor and then we'll talk you know and, th- and then i think I-, I don't think our conversation with legendary canadian rick hansen in half an hour will be an attack on anyone but i digress you, you get what i'm saying people are going to sit here and mm-hmm. say well hang on a second what does this mean for all the truckers what is what is it what does this mean for everybody else that that's going to be affected by this how how, how do you help or how do you how do you assist people in pivoting whether we're talking about people working in the oil and gas industry pivoting to a career in sustainable energy or whether we're talking about truckers pivoting to new methodology or or, or new city building when it comes to deliveries and shipping and receiving i mean how do, how does a city or a province a nation why do we say how does a jurisdiction actually put this into practice and ensure that you know people essentially people's livelihoods aren't harmed Mm-hmm. I think, um, I mean, I'm going to draw from your parallel. We saw this uh, kind of with the with the coal phase out in Alberta uh, and really any energy transition and any any transition in general, you're, all, you're always going to have winners and losers, right? And it's really about thinking about that and making sure that the people that are that are affected have some sort of mechanism to participate in this transition. Uh, so what we saw with the coal phase out as an example is programs for retraining or bridging to retirement. There are specific policies that are put in place so that we have much more winners and much, much less losers, of course. But the nature of a transition in itself is that some people are some people are going to be affected and some people are going to be benefited. So I think in, in this case, it's it's definitely not different. Um, 
and one thing one thing to 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 mention as an example uh traditionally transportation infrastructure such as uh how do we say like um so highways and such but also st- uh, store warehouses distribution centers have been disproportionately placed in areas of low income or communities of color mm. so what this actually gives us an opportunity in the transition is to consider okay you know what are the types of inequities that we have. This is a position, a time for us to pivot. And how can we actually redesign the way that we design our cities or reconsider how we design our cities to minimize some of these inequities? So if you're talking about truck drivers as an example, if we think about, uh, you know, the, the, uh, this movement towards things like delivery drones or automatic delivery vehicles, automated delivery vehicles, ADVs, as they call, you know, we might have less truck drivers, but we might have more truck. So truck engineers or people who do automation, uh, who do, who work in sensors. So those are much higher paying, higher quality jobs that exist. So I think one of the ways that we can focus is to bridge between uh, what was before and what is now and uh, to also realize that that those workers are going to be affected. How can we bring them into the future? But also to realize that some of these jobs are going to be higher paying, more stable jobs. In the energy transition, we refer to, to renewable energy, which is, I, I believe, the only energy source that actually, or energy the type of energy development that grew during the pandemic. There are much more stable jobs that are less susceptible to the oil and gas boom-bust economy. So they may not be as high paying, but they are actually more stable. So I think we have to think about the types of jobs that are being created, uh, you know, are they better jobs? Are they more stable jobs? And also to think about the people that are losing in this transition and how can we bring them along with us so that everybody's winning. I think it's so important that you use the word opportunity. And and there is you make such a great point about the communities, typically, where some of these these delivery centers are located. And and uh, I mean, your teams come up with a ton of recommendations. People uh, need to check out uh, this resource from the Pemmon Institute. You, you talk about delivery micro hubs and and parcel lockers, digital support for businesses. And then you get into really, really big ones. I mean, you and we could talk for five hours on this, but waterway logistics hubs and subsurface tunnel networks. And, and, (laughs) and, you know, I mean, and, and these are big ones that would cost uh, hundreds of millions or bold ideas and uh, maybe even billions of dollars. And people could say, okay, well, these are actually really neat ideas and they're great, but who's going to pay for them? So how do you see some of this infrastructure being covered? Does it start with almost a, oh, if I use this word, you know, if I use this phrase side, you know what's going to happen. But if we took the the idea of a carbon tax and applied it to things like, I know, I know, I know. But if we priced the carbon on things like online deliveries, is that what you'd be looking to? I mean, essentially, who pays for it? So, uh. I think I think that's a that's a great point. And and I always say this. I mean, online shopping isn't this new thing. It's been around since the 1990s. Uh, right. It emerges as a disruptive business model. Amazon was founded in 1994, eBay in 1995 and Alibaba in 1999. So it's it's something that's been growing. But what we've been seeing recently is a much bigger uh, or, or like a fiercer competition towards faster delivery. What was standard delivery two to three days uh, a few years ago now is trending towards one day shipping and even expedited shipping. So really, 
expedite same day shipping, I should say. So really what that means is a single package on a single truck is traveling from Babies R Us to make it to, to your doorstep the same day. So as something like a tax for, for really fast shipping could actually fund some of these programs that um, or fund some of these companies to invest in the necessary technologies to come into play. So so yes, taxation in a way for something that's uh, that's a little bit more more expedited. I think this pressure for really fast shipping makes it really hard for retailers to adopt some of these sustainable solutions. So that is one way to do it. But I think it's important to also think it, funding is definitely important, but there are things that could be done simply through regulatory reform. Something that the city of Toronto did recently is it allowed loading zones uh, in the city not only to accept trucks, but also to accept cargo bikes. This is something that doesn't cost money, but it tells companies to say, hey, if you're delivering by a cargo bike, you can park in this loading zone instead of taking a curbside space uh, away from, let's say, a taxi as an example. So there is a combination. Funding is definitely important and paramount, uh, but but at the same time, there are some creative solutions that we could do that just enable some of these solutions to come online. You can read more about this report by visiting the Pembina Institute online at Pembina.org. Building healthy cities in the doorstep delivery era. Uh, grateful to have Saeed Kadura joining us. Uh, I was reading up on you. It's like whenever I see that somebody has more than one grad degree in engineering, I go, oh, yeah, that's somebody I got to talk to. Really appreciate your perspective. And, and, and I, I'll be honest with you right now. My I'm like I'm envisioning what things like this would look like and uh, and that's the whole point of a report like this isn't it to start thinking outside of how we've designed cities or outside of our standard consumer habits so mission accomplished. Thank you so much. And uh, I mean, now's the time to really think about what the future of our cities look like. And we're really in a pivotal transformational moment. So let's just take advantage of the Great Reset, as they call it. Perfect. There you go. Saeed Kadura, you bet. The Great Reset. I know that that's going to get a lot of people going, too, because you remember you remember people started talking about the Great Reset. Like, what does that actually mean with regards to the economy? But can we all agree that this pandemic, that these let's call it a two year window, that the, these two years will have been an opportunity for many of us or the impetus for many of us in, in, in some circumstances you did not have a choice uh, about reinventing yourself or changing the way that you operated or or, or uh, adopting new personal habits or, or, or maybe saying goodbye and flushing away some long-standing personal habits you can let me know what you think this is great James loved the guest Emma says thanks Saeed perfect keep the comments coming Emma says I like that idea a lot by the way Trevor says it's it's more about having truck drivers carry things other than oil tankers, not retraining them to be engineers. Wally says, why do we never talk about alleyway use? You don't take up sidewalks or curbsides, have delivery vans come in through the back, rethink design and traffic within. The only thing is, Wally, in a lot of cities, alleyways are now being reinvented as major pedestrian zones with fabulous opportunities again for restaurants or retail locations i mean in some cases you're seeing entire districts i don't know what they call them not alley districts but something along those lines where it's off the main drag but still it allows for this this beautiful environment so reimagine re-envision you can let me know what you think if, if you if you'd rather not risk your comment just evaporating away on our live chat you can always use our hashtag real talk rj or of course you can send us an email to talk at ryan that 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 hashtag is sponsored it's powered as you know by the team at park power and we are more than happy and as a matter of fact we're thrilled to be partnered with park power because we love 
the fact that they take 10% of their electricity profits and they plug them back into non-profits in the communities where we all live and work here across the province of Alberta, Park Power delivering electricity, natural gas and internet. And if you visit their website, parkpower.ca right now, you can compare rates to see how what you're currently paying for these services might change. Were you to take your business over to Park Power? And don't forget, if and when you sign up, use the promo code 2021-REALTALK and you'll get $70 off your first bill. Also wanted to give a big shout out to the team at Friesen Brothers for more than 60 five years they've been alberta grown and alberta owned 16 locations across the province now including this big beautiful store in south edmonton follow friesen brothers on instagram at friesen bros you look back a couple of posts and you'll see this one where they announced their own friesen brothers branded alberta made barbecue sauce i tried it over the weekend as a matter of fact we got into a couple different ones of them we, we went with the friesen brothers they know they do the the butchers will put those those burger patties together for you and they're just absolutely unbelievable i did my burgers by the way had some company over and i did my i cooked my burgers maybe for one of the first times in my life to medium oh yes yes it felt very american of me nice. but i but you i trusted it yeah, yeah. They, just just it's the tiniest little bit of pink not raw mm. but just the tiniest little bit of pink and again, that's what the Americans do, right? We don't do it so much in Canada. That's true. There are different, I mean, you go to different parts of the world, there are different, like a steak, you can order your burger yeah. in different grades. But the meat quality mm, was yes. so good that we cooked the burgers to medium and they were fantastic. Well, here's why that Instagram post matters. If you go right now, check out this post with the barbecue sauce, follow Friesen Brothers on Instagram, follow me at Ryan Jesperson, and then leave a comment on the post about what you'd love to throw on the grill from Friesen Brothers. Every day this week, we're we're going to be picking one real talker that's going to win a Friesen Brothers barbecue prize pack. Look at this for pickup at the South Edmonton store. We will notify you day by day, courtesy of our friends at Friesen Brothers. All right, let's check in on my Twitter poll. I'm going to see how this goes. And we're, ta- we're asking you today, and this is, this is leading up to a conversation in about 30 seconds from now uh, with an economist out of McEwen University authoring a report for the Fraser Institute. Would you support Alberta returning to a flat tax system? In other words, hypothetically, 10% for everybody when it comes to provincial income tax as opposed to uh, the progressive tax rate introduced in 2015 by then Premier Rachel Notley, which sees the highest income earners paying 15%. Would you support Alberta returning to a flat tax system if it proved to stimulate the economy? 26% of respondents say yes. 66% of respondents, we'll call it two and three, say no. And about seven and a half, we'll call it 8% of you say, well, it depends. Stephen Carter, former chief of staff for former Premier Allison Redford, has chimed in and says... A flat tax did not stimulate the economy. It gave rich people more money. Kevin says, well, it's a high volatility strategy. There there could be huge fluctuations in government revenue or public standards. If you can handle the uncertainty and the risk, then sure. But if you prefer systemic stability, predictability, then no. The good times being better, the bad times being worse is not acceptable. That from Kevin. That's a thoughtful response. I appreciate that. No Drones Canada says it's a laugh, says what's the purpose of the economy if it doesn't give benefits to most people? Flat taxes benefit the richest among us. Their wealth does not trickle down. Flat taxes create more wealth inequality and undermine democracy. Wow. That from No Drones Canada. All right. 
Well, the author of this report, kind enough to join us this morning, and uh, it's a pleasure to welcome a professor of economics out of McEwen University, a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute, Dr. Erget Freddie. Welcome to the show, my friend. I suspect I may have mispronounced your name. Can you help me out on this one? How do I properly pronounce it? You got it right. Perfect. Well, welcome to the show, and thank you very much. Let me tell you, you and I find ourselves in hostile territory right now. The numbers show that not only does not everybody love the idea of a flat tax, but but a lot of people believe that because this is coming from the Fraser Institute that is influenced by the Koch brothers and the uber wealthy and they can't take it. It's not worth the paper that it's printed on. What do you say to the detractors right out of the gates? Uh, Thank you for having me, Ryan. I mean, uh, as you remember, before 2015, we had a flat tax system where we had... uh, uh, 10% flat income tax or single income tax rate for everybody. For everybody, So that changed in 2015 with the new NDP government. And the new NDP government, as you remember, it introduced a progressive income tax system. So the question is, some people argue that uh, that move by the government uh, eroded what was Alberta tax advantage. So the question is, if uh, we want to regain part of the Alberta tax advantage, what happens if we return to the previous flat income tax system? That means the single income tax rate system. So my research focus on this particular issue. What happens? How will Alberta be affected? How will the Alberta government uh, provincial budget will be affected? So my research, yeah, yeah, that's that's the focus of my research. So there are economic benefits, and as some of your viewers said, there are also causes. Uh, associated with going back to the flat income tax system. So I'll be happy to explain the costs associated with that and also the benefits of going to the flat income tax system. It has both costs and benefits. We have to weigh both the costs and benefits associated with that. Sure. And it's fair to talk about pros and cons and and costs and, and benefits, obviously. But is a flat tax inherently harmful to the poor or harmful to low income earners and immediately automatically only beneficial to the wealthy i mean that's how it's being understood perceived and described by a lot of people chiming in on my twitter poll today exactly you are right when you look at it so for example if we cut the personal income tax from 15 percent to 10 percent uh, when you look at from superficially it will be the high income earner who will benefit however if the economy is stimulated if the economy creates more jobs if more entrepreneurial activities are created in the province that will create more jobs and ordinary Albertans can also benefit so what happens is that people usually they look at who directly benefits from the income tax but they don't look at those who indirectly benefit when economic activities increase entrepreneurial activities increase and more jobs are created in the province. So I think it is depending. It depends on how we view the issue. So, so we have to look at all issues. I can I can understand how people may say if a high income earner is saves money on taxes, it makes more money available for either more hiring or for expenditures on luxury items that could glean exactly. larger sales taxes, etc. <laughs> But you know the counterpoint, because I'm seeing it a whole bunch this morning from people saying, this is trickle down. I mean, this is Ronald Reagan 101, and it's been disproven many, many times. It doesn't work. Trickle down does not happen. What would you say to those people? Uh, it's a good point. It's a good question, Ryan. Uh, one of the most important challenges of selling the idea of uh, reducing any income tax, if you want to reduce any income tax, 
It's very challenging because people see only one side of the problem, one side of the issue. So the same applies for income tax. So in my research, when uh, I have found that when income tax rate is reduced, more economic activities occur, more jobs will be created, more entrepreneurial activities will be in, interest, uh, in created. As for example, uh, entrepreneurs, they can uh, take more risks, they can invest more. All of these will stimulate the economy and create jobs. So when more jobs are created, who will benefit? Of, of course, ordinary Albertans can benefit. Yes, when you look at it, for, at first, it looks like it's only beneficial for high-income earners. But when you go deep into the problem, deep into the issue, in fact, ordinary Albertans also can benefit from such a policy okay so why don't we talk why don't we talk if we're going to say the costs and the benefit of the pros or the cons why don't we start with the pros first what are the why don't we start actually by understanding the landscape what what does your report show would be the budgetary or the revenue implications for the alberta government were it to return to a 10 percent flat tax what would that mean for alberta's bottom line it would obviously take a hit Exactly. You are right. That's a very good question. And then actually, this is the most important issue that uh, people care about that people, uh, and even, in fact, policymakers also care about. What is the cost? What is the catch? When, when we go from the progressive, the current progressive income tax system to the flat tax system, what will be the catch? Now, uh, in my research, I assume, for example, if the provincial government gradually returns to the flat tax system over a four-year period, so by cutting, let's say, uh, from 15% to 14% the first year, from 14% to 13% the second year, from 13 to 12% the third year, and from 12 to 10% the first year, in the first year, the provincial government will lose about $16 million. So that is not that much. But uh, at the end of the reform, the provincial government will lose about $1.36 billion. So you are right, there is a revenue loss. There is a budgetary implication. But when you look at this in perspective, this is roughly 9% uh, as compared to the no business scenario. So when you compare the revenue loss, which is uh, around $1.36 or $1.4 billion, and the main economic benefits that come with the tax move this revenue loss is marginal. It is not cheap, of course, but it has economic benefits. But the loss is roughly about $1.4 billion. That is a budgetary implication. Albertans have seen, though, I mean, I think it's fair to say Albertans have seen evidence that oftentimes tax breaks do not translate into stimulated economic activity for the province. And I look to some of the tax breaks that have been granted to big oil as an example. We've seen it doesn't turn into hiring. Uh, as a matter of fact, it doesn't even guarantee that companies are going to stick around, that companies are going to stay in Alberta. We've seen oil companies enjoy big tax breaks over the past year and a half, past couple of years, and some of them have ultimately packed their bags and, and moved south. So what would lead the general public to believe that it would be any different on an individual or personal income tax level? A very interesting question. Uh, the, the issue is, for if you look at it from a business perspective, Income tax is only one of the elements they take into account. So if you are, for example, investing in the energy sector, yes, the tax rate matters. The corporate income tax matters. The income tax rate matters. But these are only one of the important issues they take into account. They look at also other issues, other important factors play into uh, play a uh, 
a significant role in the decision making of businesses. So when we reduce the income tax rate, boom, it, it doesn't automatically increase the business activity because other things have to be taken into account. So my uh, study suggests that if other things remaining the same, for example, if other things remaining the same and we reduce the income tax rate, then we can see a, an improvement in economic activity. We can see, for example, uh, uh, if the income tax rate is low, uh, corporations may uh, want to locate themselves, the head offices will be located in Alberta. With that comes jobs, for example, uh, entrepreneurs, businesses, they want to create take more risk. They can invest more. All of this can stimulate the economy and ordinary Albertans. They can benefit from the job creation associated with that. Again, tax rate is only one of the question, one of the issues that business take into account. I'm assuming here other things are remaining the same. You are right. If we reduce the income tax rate and oil price crash, then we will see this kind of benefit. If other things, bad things happen, for example, you can't think of the corporate income tax rate cut we saw last time. But that corporate income tax cut uh, coincided with the pandemic. So we didn't see the full benefit of the lower corporate income tax. So as you have raised, it is important to take into account other considerations. So the more corporate, the more income taxes that I'm talking about is assuming other things are remaining the same. So let yeah. me ask you this, uh, Dr. Yes. Freddie. So you'll you'll have lower income earners or they don't have to be lower income earners. You can have anybody saying, hang on a second, though. If the government's going to take a $1.4 billion hit on revenue by implementing this, and let's be honest, the government would, I mean, you know, you've got the premier saying if they're going to introduce something like a sales tax, I mean, he, he never would, I don't think, um, or at least it would be a last resort. It would be the type of thing that they would believe, you know, it would, it would have to go to a referendum. Um, at the very least, it would be something that you'd have to campaign on in an election, I think, uh, if you're not going to lose the goodwill of the people. And so you have to sell the public on this. And you'll have people, yes. pro probably I'm going to say everybody earning less than 300 grand a year is probably mm -hmm. going to have some concerns about this. Or let's say, you know, lo lower than a quarter million dollars a year. And, and one of the big concerns is going to be if, if you take the hit on the revenue side, you're going to have fewer money to disperse to programs. And one of the ways that it will translate, if not cuts, is user fees and user fees will disproportionately punish the lower income earners or people on tight budgets, regular folks with families and other financial obligations. That would be one of the cons. How do you, quote unquote, sell this to the public? If people aren't, they, they don't, they're not, they're not going to believe in the trickle down thing. There's going to be a lot of cynicism. They're going to see the track record of tax cuts. I'll acknowledge your point about lower oil prices, but the point is tax cuts and holidays and breaks have not necessarily proven to provide that security. So, so how do you address the obvious impact on lower income earners here? How, how does the government address that? Uh, I think this is, a think this is a legitimate question. This is a legitimate concern, particularly now. The Alberta government is in the red. We are, uh, uh, the budget, we are in budget deficit. We have been for a while. So selling this idea of going to the flat tax system at this time may be very challenging. It is true. So uh, when the economy is in trouble like now, 
uh, when the oil price is very low and the non-renewable resource revenue is very low, uh, selling this idea of going to the flat tax system is very challenging. It is very difficult. Admittedly, it's very difficult. Uh, for, for example, previously, historically, we collect about 20% of our revenue from non-renewable resource revenue. Now, because of the crash in oil price, we collect only 7%. About 7% of Alberta's revenue come from non-renewable resource revenue. At the current uh, in the current budget, so that means if we go to the flat tax system and we incur a 1.4 billion dollar loss, it can have a negative impact on social active social services, for example, or the government has to get the revenue from other sources. Now, this is a challenge, of course. We have to look at the timing. When should we engage in this kind of reform? That's an important issue. Now. So even if it is very difficult to uh, engage in this kind of tax reform now, well, the government can also uh, look at this as a long-term proposal, a long-term idea. Okay, when, for example, when the pandemic is over, for example, when everything goes back to normal and when uh, we are managing our budgets properly, then we can have an additional tool to stimulate economic activities and create more jobs in the province by going to the flat tax System. And that will make Alberta the province with the lowest tax rate in the country. And in fact, as compared to other uh, North American states, it will make the Alberta uh, the jurisdiction with the lowest tax rate. That is one way. Now, so this is a long-term goal. This is a long-term proposal. It may not be feasible now, but it can be feasible uh, in the future. Now, I, I may add one more thing here. If Budgetary implication precludes this kind of bold reform idea. The government can also engage in a minor tax reform. And that minor tax reform affects only a very small number of people. And that is, let's say, uh, we cut the top income tax bracket. We go from 15% to 14%, not going all the way to the flat tax rate. Okay? That will make the province with the lowest tax rate and we can uh, regain part of the Alberta tax advantage. So yes, timing is very important. I understand politically, socially, and economically, it's very challenging to engage in this kind of tax reform now, but this is something that we should talk about for when the time is right, we can regain part of our lost Alberta tax advantage. Uh, Dr. Argetti Freddy is uh, an economist uh, out of McEwen University, professor there and a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. That brand new report just out this morning. You can check it out online. Just follow the links on my Twitter. Thanks so much for making the time to talk to us. We appreciate it. Thank you for that. Thank you very much for having me, Ryan. Yeah, you bet. Um, yeah. That's, a, that's, that's a tough one. That's, that's an interesting one. That's an interesting perspective. I, I would say politically, the toughest sell would be, like he says, a slight break in the highest tax bracket or a slight break in the highest tax bracket alone from 15 to 14%. Political opponents to this government would be salivating. I mean, it would be worth it for them, for the government's revenue to take a hit for the government the conservative government to implement that policy, wouldn't it? Because what's the spin? What's the messaging on that? They only gave a tax break to literally only the highest income earners. I don't know about that one. But generally speaking, would you support it or not? It's great to see former Alberta Party MLA Karen McPherson chiming in on this. She says, no, 
No flat tax on my Twitter. She says it's a regressive approach to taxation that overwhelmingly benefits very wealthy people. Mulkins says no tax breaks for the wealthy. They don't create jobs. There's mountains of evidence that shows it just concentrates wealth. Flat tax rates target lower earners. A millionaire can afford a tax of 100K on their million, but a person making 20 grand finds it a lot tougher to hand over two. Edmund Decudo says, oh, that old chestnut being regurgitated by the Fraser Institute. I see. Well, it has been a while. You can let me know what you think. I encourage you to, you know, I would say don't hold your tongues, but you're not. That's great. It's brilliant. It's wonderful. It's why we have these conversations. We can have all of these placid, benign, meaningless, boring conversations devoid of controversy. But who wants to have those? Would you support Alberta returning to a flat tax system if it proved to stimulate the economy? The poll is open on my Twitter right now. It's been open for, what is it, an hour and change, an hour and 15 minutes. We got a, closing in on 1,000 votes. 66% of you say no. That number has been holding strong. 27% say yes. And 7% say it depends. Keep the comments coming. We'll revisit this a little bit later on the show. I want to remind you that Trash Talk is coming up on Friday. I wonder if we'll get a couple of trash talk submissions based on that most recent conversation. I would love to see it. When a lot of you respond to the the conversations we have here on the show, but but you write in, they're not necessarily trash talk. For example, I got an email here from Sandy on forest management agreements, logging in Alberta's forests, and, and we're going to get to that a little bit later, but it's not a trash talk email. It's just like logical and laying out some points. But if you want to blow off a little steam, Send your rant to us. The shorter, the better to talk at ryanjesperson.com. The team at Local Waste loves to talk trash. They've been doing it for more than a quarter century, locally owned and operating right here in Western Canada. The call out is on two fronts. Number one, if your business could stand to have a better relationship, maybe see more benefit from your partner here, whoever you're dealing with to get your garbage bins handled. Visit localwaste.ca, reach out to their team. They love to help you get out of bad contracts and design something that works better for your small business. The relationship with Local Waste will grow as your business grows. And on the flip side, if your community, if you're an entrepreneur and you see an opening for Local Waste in your community, they're always looking. I mean, they've just added some new partners in Saskatchewan over the past number of months. You can check out their social media for details on that. They're always looking for partnerships on both sides of the coin at localwaste.ca. I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome our next guest to the program. It's it, it's sometimes a, a rarity. It's a cliche, to be sure, unless it fits. But it's, it's oftentimes a rarity where you could look across an entire country and say, this guy literally needs no introduction. As soon as I start to describe him as the man in motion, you know exactly who I'm talking about, don't you? He's a six-time Paralympic medalist. He undertook an epic 26-month, 40,000-kilometer journey around the world in his wheelchair. He's the founder of an organization committed to creating a world without barriers for people with disabilities. Of course, I'm talking about Rick Hansen making his Real Talk debut. What a thrill to have you here, my friend. Thanks so much for making time for us today. 
Hey, thanks, Ryan. I really appreciate it. What an honor. Thanks for having me in. Well, I can tell you. Can I tell you something personal? Uh, There's a family connection here. Uh, My brother, Kyle, who's a theater actor out of Vancouver, was so blessed and and so lucky to play you uh, in the production, the theatrical production of Rick, of course, which toured right around the time of the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. And so uh, we as a family have long admired your accomplishments, and it really means a lot to have you here on the show. Oh, well, thanks, Ryan. And hey, listen, uh, say a big hi to Kyle for me. He's an amazing young man, and it was fantastic to have him play, you know, my role, but more importantly, that the whole Manitoba Youth Theatre brought that brought that story to the next generation and right across the country. Uh, we were really honored. Yeah, no kidding. Well, Rick, we've been we've been talking about Disability Pride Month this month. We've had so many different angles and opportunities to address some of the barriers that folks face and as well as some of the many wins that people are experiencing. We've met so many inspiring people when, when it comes to, you know, let's say the timing of this. And I want to talk about your partnership with Athabasca University and their power ed program in, in just a moment. But but how does a guy like you, a high profile, uh, a celebrity, essentially one that has inspired millions of people? What is a month like disability pride month mean to you well first of all you know it's it's a chance for people to be able to remind ourselves just how big a deal disability is people often underestimate the prevalence of disability in our society you know globally there's 1.3 billion people living with a disability according to the who aging baby boomers makes that uh, you know exponentially growing in the future uh, in alberta it's 22 uh, percent you know that are 15 years of age and older and you know, we often sort of don't recognize how big it is because it's so fragmented. And so we want to bring people together on the big issues. Uh, like it's important. It's a big demographic. It has huge social justice related issues, but also economic and cultural issues that we need to address in order to keep uh, celebrating our successes, but also, you know, moving the bar higher and higher every year on the long, you know, ultra marathon of social change. The ultra marathon of social change. I love that. Can, well, can, can we revisit the, the, the very beginning? I mean, can, can, we, can we take a yeah. look at, at the Man in Motion tour? And, and, and ultimately, I mean, we're going to see some iconic images here of you on the Great Wall of China, the Tower Bridge in London, and, and just absolutely unbelievable stuff. What did you, at the, at the outset of that journey, uh, what were you hoping to accomplish right at the beginning? You know, as a young kid in my, what, my uh, mid-20s, I had this dream that Maybe I could actually use my marathon talents as a Paralympian and uh, wheel around the world to create awareness of the potential of people with disabilities and also to challenge people to remove barriers that happen to still be there, whether they be physical or attitudinal or social, and really to listen to local champions in the community because they could point the way if all we could do is come together as a movement. But little did I know how how big the country was uh, and the world and ultimately how inaccessible it was. And and disconnected. And so, uh, you know, it was a baby step forward on this long journey. And I was just so honored and proud to have so many amazing people support this young dream. And in uh, it moved from a, an endeavor over two years, two months and two days to become a, a lifelong mission. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, and, 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 and your life's work has, has been absolutely remarkable. How would you characterize um, w- when we come to issues around accessibility uh, and issues ultimately around equity and equality? Um, how different is the landscape now from that man in motion tour? I mean, how far have we come? Well, you think about it back then, uh, we had just landed a, a constitution and a charter of rights and freedom that actually for the one of the most progressive constitutions in the entire planet where people with disabilities were 
you know, recognized as equals and that they shouldn't be impeded by any unnatural barrier. And, and so yet th- those lofty words were embedded. There's still massive barriers in Canada and around the world. And so human rights have, have been uh, continually to be reinforced, um, you know, whether it be in China, you know, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act in the States, you know, things through the, you know, the European Union. And, and those, those levels of progression uh, create tremendous hope that, you know, that this is a, a global cultural value. And, and now in Canada, we're still to this day having uh, our federal government just two years ago implemented a Canadians with Disabilities Act. And, and we have only four provinces in the country that have then embedded provincial legislation to create a social safety net. Uh, municipalities and uh, Indigenous communities are still grappling with this issue. And so uh, we've come a long way, lots to celebrate, but boy, it's still hard to believe that uh, we have so far to go. And do you think, what do you think it is, Rick? I mean, with regards to why some of these barriers still exist, it's not as though people aren't aware of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, What what are some of the biggest challenges to actually impacting meaningful change? I think, first of all, you know, everybody tends to associate, you know, disability with uh, perhaps a a body part or (laughs) some clinical diagnosis, uh, you know, either you know, the, what's the symbol of disability that we see in, in today's society right. everywhere? It's uh, it's the iconic stick man in a wheelchair. But, you know, what about someone who has, uh, you know, a visual challenge, uh, you know, whether they're blind uh, or, you know, they have low vision or hearing challenge, whether they're deaf or hard of hearing? Uh, what about someone who has an invisible disability that's not so easily uh, identifiable? And, and, and so what about people who have temporary disabilities or those who are in the family are connected, uh, you know, over 50% of people uh, have had some either temporary or permanent disability or live with someone who does. And so it's how do you figure out how to make that a big deal uh, so that people recognize that this isn't a marginalized issue. Secondly, I think the other side is that there's always that, you know, we're coming in a very short period of time in our history from an old model where people with disabilities, if you had one, you and your family were kind of in trouble and to be pitied and, uh, and there wasn't a lot of opportunity. And, and in today's world, you know, the expectation is, is that, you know, that you, you truly can fully participate in society. Uh, there's all kinds of amazing possibilities of barriers are removed. And so that psychology is shifting and expectations are changing rapidly. And then also it's one of those realities where we think about the problems that that you, uh, you you think that it's a huge issue related to cost. You know, costs are big barriers. So, well, it's too expensive to make all these places accessible or include people with disabilities. But people don't actually look at the costs of confinement about the existing constraining or restricting policies. You know, massive unemployment, uh, lack of opportunities to be a consumer or fully contribute, volunteer or work in the workplace. You know, all these uh, restrictive difficult realities to get disability supports just to survive and uh, and so those levels of awareness still aren't coming up to levels of government where the leadership truly gets it and our community is still a little too fragmented to be able to come together there's still a lot of cross levels of interest and so our goal is to get a lot of these big barriers where most people can actually you know identify with the solution and come in without giving up the other micro concerns that they might have which are many and valid 
It's so I'm not necessarily comparing these two scenarios, although there probably are uh, comparisons that could exist. But it's the same sort of a thing when you talk about affordable child care or you talk about some sort of subsidized child care. And people will say, well, what's it going to cost and how are you going to pay for it? People will say also, what's the cost of not having it? Right. Look at how it keeps people out of the workforce. Look at how it stops economic stimulus. And it's and it's and I would imagine you could make the identical argument here. I mean, in a way, you just did. Well, for sure. You know, there's about a half a million people in the workforce ready, willing and able to be able to come in and participate and and engage. Just imagine the turnaround opportunities that has, you know, consumers who are willing to engage and participate as well fully if you're open for business or if you're thinking about product innovation to meet their needs and ensure that they can fully engage in society. Global market opportunities and multi-billion dollar industries, you know, global tourism as COVID re-enters. And, and then, of course, uh, about $17 billion to the local you know, uh, tax realities, uh, either municipal, provincial or federal, if uh, people are really engaged. And, you know, so so those are massive returns. You know, if you start thinking about those. What's what's the 17 billion, Rick? Yeah, it's a 17 billion dollar, according to uh, you know the, the Conference Board of Canada. You know, if people with disabilities by 2030 were able to be engaged, you know, in the economy and you know in the workforce, that that's the turnaround. You know that you know it happens because why? Well, you know, people are able to move forward and be engaged in our society, and and so I think the reality is here, Ryan, is moving people um, from the old kind of just the charitable model. Yeah. You know, which is you know way back pre my tour, and even uh, beyond the human rights model, which is so critical in today's world, but also thinking of the economic and cultural value proposition, you know, that actually comes forward. Because if we do the right thing, uh, you know, it's not just the right thing, you know, it's also massively beneficial for our economy, for our culture and our society. You know, some of the greatest innovations, you know, that you can deliver for making the world better and more accessible for people with disabilities it's good for everybody and so why not yeah you know what i've, I've often said uh you know it's, it's kind of unfortunate sometimes that you have to make an economic argument for something that may be described as a social investment to get people on board but there's absolutely also nothing wrong with pointing out that there are huge economic benefits to lifting people up and to encourage well, you know yeah. to providing those those platforms those incentives of that funding well, exactly. And also you have to think about this too, is that expectations back in the 70s and 80s have shifted dramatically for people with disabilities and their view of what's possible and what they think is a, an appropriate human right. And and when we put standards in place, you know, which bed, bedrock those expectations of the time, you know, 10 years, a decade, two decades go by, and guess what happens? People's expectations shift and also so does technology, you know, innovation, uh, product development, you know, new systems and, uh, and opportunities. And so, so today's standards can become tomorrow's handicaps. And so the innovation side, when you actually keep people thinking about the outcome, their creativity and energy, you know, doesn't get stymied by some old standard or benchmark. You know, the goal is to get to and beyond that line and keep going because that's what humans do if you let them and if you create the framework for that innovation to thrive.
Rick, how would you? We, we've got audience members here. Like Carrie is really engaged right now on our live chat, watching on YouTube, and says, you know, wants me to ask you about the the Canada Disability Benefit and the Accessible Canada Act. Um, we did hear from one of our expert guests last week that said that the Canada Disability Benefit really excludes a lot of persons with disabilities. How would you? I mean, I'm asking you sort of a massive question here, so approach it as you see fit. But but how would you characterize? How different levels of government and maybe in particular the federal government is doing on this file right now? Yeah. Well, first of all, you know, I think the reality is, is that Canada, you know, we have to recognize, you know, we're a we're a confederation and and this multi levels of jurisdictional responsibility. Uh, it's a huge handicap if we're not working together to build bridges and harmonize and uh, and to try to get it right, you know, because, you know, the federal government will do their part but it still requires the provinces and municipalities and indigenous communities to be able to do their part. And if we're all doing it our own way, because we have jurisdictional responsibility and authority um, without thinking about harmonizing and, uh, and really bringing the principle to life, then yeah, somebody might do something at some level and they're missing, you know, missing it at the provincial level. It doesn't translate. And in the area of disability, that's not acceptable. And, you know, Canada needs more bridges to inclusivity and harmonization than we do barriers and uh, barriers to jurisdiction are part of the responsibility of politicians and leaders to be able to get past, build, build the country together and figure out what we actually have in common and make those things happen. Disability is one of the great unifiers when you start thinking of those solutions. And so that, that federal piece on disability supports, you know, income equality, it, we have to keep elevating elevating it and not accept the intrinsic barriers that, you know, might be in place in a current proposal. And that's up to the disabled community to come together and keep pushing hard. So uh, I, I think we, we have to make sure that at the baseline, people with disabilities have that basic level of income support because they're hugely unemployed or, you know, marginalized and, and that their disability supports come with them as they move forward. You know, and just because you get married, it doesn't mean that you should lose your 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 basic supports to be able to function in a community, uh, especially given the intrinsic barriers that are currently out there. Or if you get a job, heaven forbid, I mean, don't you want to be high performing and you're going to more than turn that around, you know, as you drive into, uh, you know, the, the tax position or as you drive into the contribution as a philanthropist or a community contributor. Yeah, we, we talked to a couple of, of guests late last week, including uh, Reverend James Rock out of Toronto. Um, and he, he wrote a piece, uh, I think it was in the Star or the Globe. I can't remember who published it, but he wrote he wrote a piece on this, how he said uh, marriage equality uh, is, continues to be denied. Uh, marriage equality does not exist uh, for people with disabilities in Canada. And he talked about that. I had no idea, Rick. I had no idea that if people... Uh, with disabilities, we're, we're, we're to enjoy uh, the emotional connection and love and real life and, and what we yeah. would assume to be a basic human right to to cohabit with someone and to build a life together that they lose their benefits. That was one example that I think blew a lot of people's minds. Well, that's the reality is most people don't realize until it happens to them or they have a family member and then they realize, oh, my gosh, I had no idea of these big barriers that still exist. And there are thousands of them. And, you know, we could spend forever you know, dissecting and getting into every single one. But, you know, from my perspective, I'm trying to, you know, get people 
to come together, uh, elevate on some of the big ones that converge and and definitely ones that we can actually uh, influence going forward together. Rick, do you have a personal opinion on on what income support should look like? I understand that we can talk about uh, federal incentives and provincial incentives. Um, I'm most familiar, although, although I'll acknowledge I'm probably not familiar enough with the assured income for the, the severely handicapped in Alberta for AISH. But I, but I also, of course, know that there are federal supports available. There's been a lot of talk, I think probably more than ever before, uh, as a result of the pandemic, about things like a universal basic income, a UBI, which I know a lot of people would like to see um, as a significant part of, of a political platform next time there is a, a federal election. Do you have a personal opinion on, on what uh, appropriate income supports look like? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's reality. I mean, there, there should be a universal you know, disability income, you know, and it should be identified at a, at a reasonable level that makes sense for, you know, uh, people and the conditions and situations that they're living in. And that shouldn't be negotiable as well as the disability support side. Also, think about the hoops that people have to go through. The system is often built on the expectation that somehow someone is going to, you know, built the system, <laughs> you know, like, like 99.9% of, of the population, you know, they're just like totally focused on just surviving and, and getting out there and doing the best they can. And they're totally honorable. And so why don't we get the red tape out of the way uh, and, and give people a sense of trust and responsibility. And, uh, and ultimately, you know, there's some innovations in place that really force us to think globally uh, Australia has, uh, you know, a disability, uh, you know, supports program where they've actually targeted the supports to people with disabilities and their family, quote, caregiver or, or, uh, or designate. And they get a chance to navigate through the system to purchase and acquire the supports that they need. And what does that do? That creates uh, a much more um, responsive consumer uh, you know, client customer responsibility. You know, if you're getting the right services, you're gonna you're gonna fund it. Or if you're getting the right products in the right way with the right you know provider, you're gonna acquire that support. And and so I think there's some really interesting things to think about for for Canada as we go forward. You know, we don't need to sort of put our head down. We can look globally for some successes and and inspiration, and then craft our own next generation levels of support. But also think about it. If you're a youth, you know, in most of Canadian structure, you know, from a provincial point of view, you get a fair bit of support, you know, a fair bit, you know, along the way. And then you reach a certain age where you're no longer classified as youth and, and you're, you're, in, you're in significant trouble. Uh, I, I get calls from all over the country, uh, families desperate for how do I, 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 you know, my child, you know, who has serious and severe cerebral palsy and, uh, you know, they need transportation. And we've had our income support to be able to fund uh, uh, an accessible van. You know, that van has been operating for over 20 years and it's now on its last legs. They've just crossed the boundary between being a youth uh, and now an adult and their funding is gone. And we can't find anywhere to find those levels of support. Um, How does that work? I mean, (laughs) that doesn't make any sense at all. Well, why is that? Well, it's because, you know, people are fragmented into these silos and they're not thinking about the whole human being on their journey, you know, from youth, you know, into into aging and aging with dignity. Yeah. Dignity is such a huge part of that. 
Uh, Rick, you know, we're, we're really proud here on Real Talk to partner with Athabasca University. Uh, and I know you are, too, with their PowerEd program. Can, can you tell us a little bit? Uh, people can, can check out more at, at uh, PowerEd.ca. But the, the Rick Hansen Foundation Accessibility Certification Program. Um, can you take us into this and describe how buildings would get awarded the RHF, the Rick Hansen Foundation Accessibility Certified Gold? How do they achieve this? Yeah, Ryan, one of the big barriers out there, aside from awareness about disability being a big deal, is the built environment. You know, uh, humans build the built environment for humans <laughs> and uh, the places we work, live, learn and play. And and so those places, when they're being built, should be built, you know, with the principles of universal and inclusive design, the most benefit for the most people. So a building can be fully used and functional. And unfortunately, with the area of disability and accessibility and inclusion, that's not the norm. Uh, you know, what we have is incredible fragmentation, again, as mentioned, you know, federally, provincially, municipally, and Indigenous in communities. And so we, we find that there's different interpretations of that, different standards, different building codes, you know, and all the power and knowledge is largely held with a small group of people in the disability community who are the advocates who have been pushing so hard for this to become normal. And it's also then held in some very small, you know, quote, pseudo expert design people. Mm. And it's like putting your mouth to a fire hose, <laughs> you know, pushing so hard, trying to grab it all. And, you know, and, and it keeps coming at them. Why? Because the design community, the, the professionals, from the point where they're actually educated at a university, you know, if you're an architect, you're an engineer, you're a city planner, or whatever you're in, there is no requirement, fundamental requirement to, to actually have this knowledge and get it right every time. And uh, and also to be innovative beyond what means right. And so we decided to take a page out of the energy efficient building community, which is ironic, you know, build energy is kind of an important afterthought to be able to ensure buildings are efficient, uh, you know, but gosh, you know, we're still trying to get people into this equation. And, and you know, we decided to make sure that, well, let's get take that knowledge upstream Let's educate, you know, in a continuing education program, uh, all the professionals who are out there in the design and, and the built community, and now they can get accredited uh, and get a designation, uh, you know, and so now they, they're fully, you know, capable of being able to produce a building and make sure that there are no uh, unintended barriers and they're not just lowballing it to an old code. Yeah. And, uh, and the building comes out not just basically accessible, but somewhere beyond called accessibility certified gold, every new building. And, you know, so we need to have education partners. We built a world-class standard, uh, which uh, is the curriculum base for this knowledge inputted by all these, you know, advocates and specialists. And they now have a training program that's in over what seven different universities and colleges across the country. And Athabasca is the, you know, online global delivery of this digital program now. And uh, they're training hundreds and hundreds of professionals. And the goal is if we get them upstream, then all we have to focus on is provincial governments, federal governments and institutions, you know, and private sector and say, you just make sure that there's a policy that everybody, everybody who's bidding for your proposal, uh, you know, has to have a designated person uh, that's accredited and a provisional rating before the concrete gets poured because yeah. erasers you know, to pencil on paper are easy to change. And then when it's finished, it's rated uh, officially an independent level 
with our partners at the Canadian Standards Association, and they say, this is designated gold. Now let's celebrate the heck out of that. And yeah, you know, then government can come in behind and start to um, maybe go after the compliance side against human rights. But meanwhile, we've got more people to and beyond the line faster, and it helps to unify the whole country, even though governments take time to come in behind and harmonize. So we're pointing the way, not waiting, and but yet we're inspiring and saying, hey, come on, guys, let's all get on the same program and let's get there faster. Yeah. So this is, yeah, in a way, because I mean, ultimately what you want to do, uh, I'm not saying you Rick Hansen, let me say what we collectively would want to do is, is say buildings. I mean, code must include this. It must reflect this. It must not be an option. This of course, well, I think the program's amazing and the affiliation, the, the partnership's excellent. It does require some sort of a, a personal or corporate initiative. Right. And I know you'd probably love sure. to take it so much further. Yeah, well, for sure. And, and the way that, the way that works is, you know, government, you know, of Alberta, you know, you're spending you know, what, three, $3 billion, you know, uh, in infrastructure, uh, you know, over the next couple of years. And, and, uh, and even more is going to come in as time moves on, you know, as we come back out of COVID, you know, the clock's ticking every time you make a procurement decision and they don't have a qualified accredited person on their team, you know, you're getting a building that's coming out, probably driven to an old code. And, uh, and probably with barriers. Now that's a tax on your dollars, you know, an ineffective tax because what's happening is it's a reaction then from the disabled community about disappointment and a lowball outcome. Now there's energy, there's cost, there's redesign, then there's redevelopment, which is another cost. And then all that time of yet not having that building be fully functional where the economic and cultural payoffs happen. So why would we, why would we do that? If we were really thinking about an efficient you know, economic and cultural and social Canada, you know, this, let's this get is, urgent about it. Let's. I agree, and, and this is right? about more than just. Can can you shatter our, our our general understanding of what we're talking about here, Rick? Like this, this is about more than just wheelchair ramps, right? Like this is a way yeah. bigger, way bigger conversation. Yeah, that's what I. That's what I said. Is that we have an old expectation that yeah. you know accessibility means stick man and wheelchair let's maybe even change that accessibility symbol you know we're talking people with visual hearing mobility uh those that are not so visible cognitive challenges on wayfinding emergency outcomes i mean uh, let's use the building and someone can actually not just be at the front counter being uh, a participant you can be behind the counter being fully employed yeah where's that thinking yeah, no kidding. So there, there's there's this, I think, initiative that people can check out. They can check out powered.ca and, of course, seek to learn more here. Do you do you I mean, when it comes to the role that you have, uh, I think when people mention your it's it's amazing what happens. We were having a, a almost an incredibly divisive conversation on the show right before you came on. And then you come on and everyone and I don't care what people's politics are or anything else. Everybody goes, Rick, like like first name basis. Everybody you meet must must refer to you by a first name basis. I mean, I, I can't imagine what, what what that must be like for you, good and bad. Um, but at the same time, I mean, do you do you see this being enough of a part of the national conversation or do you kind of lament it? Some days you kind of wonder what's it going to take for people to care about this yeah it's always the dynamic tension between being you know grateful and celebrating success recognizing how big the issue is and how long the journey is yeah and with with the you know the real clear understanding that and the urgency that we're not we're not nearly there 
we still have a long way to go. And so celebrating the successes, the champions, you know, whether they're in the community that represents people with disabilities, whether it's those that are engaged, you know, showing the way and modeling the way, or, um, you know, any institution, government that's actually doing their best now, but not being satisfied, that doesn't mean we're there. And, and keep pushing for solutions. You know, problems are easy to find and identify. Solutions are where the action is. And uh, that's where for 35 years, you know, plus um, I've been engaged in. And uh, yeah, it's, it's sometimes frustrating, you know, there's no question, but you gotta, you gotta own where your attitude and where your focus is because life is precious. You only have a little bit of energy. Uh, you know, let's bring it forward to make make a difference the best you can and know that if you really want to have things happen, though, uh, it can never be uh, one man in motion. It's mm. all of us, you know, and the more people we can get engaged, you know, trying to create a movement that's not just national, but global. Uh, I didn't uh, just wheel across the country. and uh, My inspiration didn't come just from Canada. You know, it, it came from the world, was reflected towards the world, and the world is smaller and more connected today than it's ever been. And so why can't and why shouldn't Canada be engaged in something that is globally relevant and significant, show the way how we respond, but participate in support and engage and learn from a global society? And if we can do that with the issue of disability, where there's it's the world's largest minority, it's one where you... Anyone, anytime can and will eventually join in your lifetime, unfortunately. The reality is this is the one thing that can bring us together. So let's start doing it. Let's start acting that way. Amazing perspective, uh, Rick. So you and your team at the Rick Hansen Foundation, I know, have worked with Athabasca University with the Power Ed program for more than two and a half years uh, to create the online version of this course, uh, the Rick Hansen Foundation Accessibility Certification Training, um, an introductory course, Accessible Spaces 101, which can uh, allow for those without the prerequisites required uh, for the RHFAC, but nonetheless want to increase understanding the accessibility. You can find all the details at powered.ca. Um this might be a weird pivot, but I just have to say uh, we've been seeing these photos of you up there we, and you are absolutely jacked in these photos. Uh, unbelievable. And of course, it, you know, as, as we introduced you, I mean, a legendary Paralympian, I would imagine that with the Paralympics fast approaching out of Tokyo, they'll kick off on August 24th. This must be something that uh, does it, does it pique your interest each and every time? Where's your head at as, as we prepare to celebrate the Olympics and the Paralympics? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's going to be a strange one for sure. Yeah. But at the same time, the, the athletes have been training, you know, f- most of them for their whole lives and dreams are coming true and unfolding. And, you know, I think it's great to get a chance to express themselves. And, you know, the Paralympics uh, are, are there now as uh, part of the host country. And, you know, that never existed back in the early 80s, you know. So, you know, getting closer and closer to seeing the athletes being recognized as athletes, which is an important reality. Sport is a mirror for how society views itself. And when we see athletes with disabilities as special and and sort of different, then sport has a a negative impact on our values. So these Paralympians are bringing it together and showing ability and what's possible. And they are athletes and that's all they want, you know, and, and yet it's still driving more social change. You know, Terry Fox and I, we played on the same wheelchair basketball together you know, we had great rivalries in Edmonton, uh, you know, with the, the Northern Lights. And, and yet, you know, we, we were brought together, um, you know, Paralympic sport actually helped shape our values, our, our sense of 
social responsibility because we benefited from so many people who were volunteering and engaged and supporting us as athletes. We wanted to pay it forward in our own way. And, and so just think of all the people who come together from the Paralympic sport community that are not only expressing themselves as athletes, but they're actually people who have disabilities who are demonstrating ability and, and through that process, they're helping push away the barriers for everybody in some way. Absolutely thrilled to have a chance to welcome you to the show, Rick. Um, your your message, I know, will resonate with thousands of people, and I'm so appreciative of your time and, and really excited to see the the, the uptake on this uh, partnership with Athabasca University. Again, Accessible Spaces 101, and of course, the, uh, the establishment of the Rick Hansen Foundation Accessibility Certification Training. You can learn more at, at uh, powered.ca, and you can also check out rickhansen.com. Thank you so much for, for blessing us all by spending some time with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. Keep up the great work and say out of call for me. Okay? I sure will, Rick. Thanks very much. I know he's watching this. Yeah, you bet. Um, that's uh, <laughs> do you love hearing a story like that. He's like, oh, yeah, Terry Fox and I we were playing wheelchair basketball. I'm sitting there going like Terry Fox and Rick Hansen in the same room. Yeah. Canada's two biggest, like most famous disability advocates. And they just play pickup basketball. And, and probably, yeah. I mean, arguably, you know, I, you know, if you, if, this is a, a bit of a strange exercise. But if you started to talk about who people would perceive, I know the CBC um, undertook this exercise many years ago of the greatest, the greatest Canadian, Canadian yes. right and people yeah. and, and Terry Fox and people talk about Tommy Douglas and uh, I think Don Cherry was ultimately up on that list bit of a different bit of a different Ooh. avenue there but but really I mean you know Rick Hansen and Terry Fox and what the two of them accomplished and, and Terry Fox with such a, a tragically short window um, unbelievable and yet Rick Hansen continues to not just persevere that's not what you would describe it I mean the guy just leads and drives people driving the discussion driving the initiatives and the program and I'd love to hear from you in so many ways as uh, perhaps our uh, trash talk presented by Local Waste on Friday may be fueled by our conversation on flat income tax. I wonder if positive reflections coming up on Monday may include some content based on some of your responses to hearing Rick Hansen on the show. I wouldn't be surprised. You know, positive reflections is how we get our week started off on the right foot each and every Monday or at least the first show of every week. Uh, and you can send in your positive reflections, a story that resonated with you as someone that paid it forward, a random act of kindness. You can send those stories into talk at RyanJesperson.com. Kubi Energy, of course, presenting positive reflections. The team at Kubi, well, right now their team is at it. They've got a whole bunch of uh, programs uh, and, and right now incentives. They're digging in to help you understand how the cost of going net zero, right? How installing solar into your home, your business, maybe your commercial operation can make more sense now than ever because of all of these available rebates. The team keeps an eye on that stuff so you don't have to do all the digging online. You give them a call. You visit them at kubienergy.ca and they're going to say, hey, listen, right now, in Alberta, for example, did you know there's a brand new solar incentive, a rebate exclusively for agricultural producers? It's true. I only know that because Jake at Kubi Energy told me so. So you can find them online. And let me remind you that right now we are so proud to partner with the team at Kubi Energy to present the Real Talk Net Zero Solar Contest presented by the team at Kubi. If you're looking for the details on it, check out kubienergy.ca slash realtalk. You have until the 25th of July. You have until the end of the weekend, but why wait that long? Why push it to the end? 
Why run it right up to the deadline to tell us your solar story? Why do you or somebody you know most deserve the chance to go net zero for free? For free. No strings attached. We're starting to get powerful letters about people that would love to see nonprofits benefit. We've heard some tragic stories, some inspiring ones. People are painting wonderful pictures with regards to why they deserve to win the Real Talk Net Zero Solar Contest presented in whole by Kubi Energy. We're putting the approximate value of this prize at $15,000. Might be a little bit less, might be a little bit more, depending on what your custom solar install looks like. But the point is, you will incur exactly zero cost. Somebody's going to get a free Net Zero Solar System. All the details at kubienergy.ca slash realtalk. You submit your solar story to our email inbox talk at ryanjesperson.com and next week real talkers will be putting this to you we want you to choose our winner we're going to do it by way of a vote and next monday we'll explain all the details also wanted to remind you that this studio is powered by the team at westworld computers and if you check them out online you're going to see all the lineup available for your browsing including these brand new imacs i know that everybody's excited about these I don't know if Sam takes a look at these. Do you take a look at these and do you get iMac Envy? They've got all the just, colors just a now. Little bit. It's like the the evolution of the iMac has gone from colors to silver to colors again. Yeah. And, back to, and now we're back to, and they were white for a while. If you were and to I'm pick just like, a color. Oh, these ones look sharp. If you were to replace your current studio horsepower with a new iMac, what color do you think you might choose? Well, I mean, here's the thing. I, I, I feel like I feel like because this is the real talk studio, we're probably gonna have to go blue. Oh, blue or okay. green. Right? Well, you're color coordinating. Exactly. Although Carrie, my wife, you know, she's a lifestylist. She always tells me what where I fall short on fashion. She says, Ryan, you're too matchy matchy. You can't be too matchy matchy all <laughs> I'm the time. I'm just trying to be on brand. <laughs> the point is, personally, I like can, the orange. You can peruse. Yeah, I had an orange one in university. The old school one, the original, the OG. Daryl and his team have been going back 40 years on this independently and family owned, including their service techs. You can book your appointment now or shop. They'll ship across the country at westworld.ca. There's a new book out and this is powerful stuff. I mean, this this really uh, for a lot of you is, is probably not something that's that's been on your radar. But a fellow by the name of James Ballard has just written a book called Poisoned Jungle. Now, here's what's super cool about this. James is a first time author at 71 years of age with this autobiography. The novel details his time as a medic in Vietnam all the way through to his time as a beekeeper in the peace country in northern Alberta. Yeah, that's right. Somewhat of an unlikely journey, so to speak, but it explores the ideas around PTSD, what we've learned as a society, and even touches on the long-term impacts of the Vietnamese, including Agent Orange. The Poison Jungle was published in fall of 2020, and it is an absolute pleasure to welcome James Ballard to the program. Welcome to Real Talk, and thanks for making time for us, James. Well, thanks so much for uh, inviting me. Um, It's quite a thrill to be on with Rick Hansen. (laughs) Yeah, well, hey, you know, here you are following Rick Hansen. And and let me say, I won't compare the stories, but your story, remarkable in its own right. 71 years of age, you released your first novel uh, based, I I suppose, on on your own retrospective. What prompted you to, to put pen to paper and to get this thing published? Well, a couple of things. Um, I, uh, 
started the pro I started writing, um, realizing that uh, uh, with my sons, um, I never knew if I'd told them too much or too little about my experiences in the war. And I wanted to, um, I, I wanted to um, have a, uh, an account of the war um, in my own words. And since I've always been uh, a reader, I've read a lot of literature throughout my life. Uh, it just seemed uh, a natural, um, natural to put it into a novel, even though it is a, a semi-autobiographical uh, uh, novel. And uh, one thing kind of led to another as I, um, you know, I tried to write over the years, uh, but you, I was busy with uh, career and, and family. And so I, uh, as writers say, I never really found my voice until uh, a little bit before my 65th birthday when I started, um, it just flowed out. It didn't mean it was any good at that point, <laughs> but at least I had found my voice. So um that that's uh, the beginning of it well can i say that it, it it might be a bit of an understatement that you found your voice because your book has has already won an independent book publishers association award for best new voice uh so obviously uh, your story has resonated with a whole bunch of people including the critics uh which says something why don't we why don't we rewind to where this whole story gets started? I mean, your upbringing and yourself as a young man, how did you wind up in Vietnam? Well, um, there was a, uh, my timing has never been particularly good, I think. I graduated from high school in 1967 in the U.S. and um, uh, combat troops were um, uh, dispatched to uh, Vietnam uh, in 65. Uh, the American presence in Vietnam predated that, um, but only in an advisory capacity. Uh, the war really heated up for the Americans in uh, 65. So graduating from high school in 67, um, I didn't have a student deferment and uh, I um, got swept up into the uh, American war effort. And by December of 1968, I was in the war zone as a medic. Did you, uh, were you drafted? Uh, initially, and I, I gave the Army an extra year in order to be a medic. Uh, um, I wanted to train as a medic. Okay, so. and, and is that because, uh, was there any particular reasoning behind that? Um, I, I think I had some kind of inner... Um, uh, wish not to um, uh, um, not to kill, I guess, or uh, that's not expressing it very very well. But um, I think it's cutting to the chase. I I wanted to. Uh, I didn't want to participate in that aspect of the war. Now that didn't keep me out of the field. That didn't keep me out of combat. But I. Um, to this day, I don't regret my decision to be a medic. What do you, uh, when it comes to your time there, and 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 let me acknowledge that I, it's it's typically as an interviewer. I mean, I've had I've had conversations with with many people that have served, uh, in particular with the Canadian Forces, and um, 
if, if I can just have some real talk with you right now, I mean, there's there's a there's, I think, a responsibility on behalf of an interviewer um, to show great respect and certain sensitivities with regards to the questions we ask and asking people, uh, people that have been diagnosed in particular with PTSD to revisit the experience or to revisit the trauma before I ask you questions about it. And before we continue to get into your book, do you find it? I mean, do you find it difficult to talk about? Does it does it trigger certain memories or does it take you back to a place that's difficult to revisit to to talk about it like this in an interview? Not at this point in life. Um, it it um, I think the the broader perspective is uh, it, it, war trauma is a type of trauma, but there's many types of uh, emotional trauma and. I think that um, what I tried to do with the book was um, broaden the, the scope of the awareness uh, of, of how trauma uh, impacts people. And um, so uh, I've 50 years out of my war, and I'm not saying that it, I don't have painful memories, but the triggers, um, I think I've learned how to, um, you know, to deal with the, uh, the triggers. And uh, there's, something, um, there's something positive in trying to address um, uh, the issues uh, of war trauma in a broader perspective. James, you you live with uh, PTSD and survivor's guilt. How long did it take or at what point in your life did you recognize that were you diagnosed with that or did you have the words to describe what you knew you were experiencing yeah and that's a very good question um it uh denial is a very uh, powerful human coping mechanism and uh coming out of the war um at the time there was uh no such thing as ptsd of course, it was called other things in uh, in previous wars, shell shock in World War One and um, uh, battle fatigue in World War Two. But I think part of the um, added trauma for the Vietnam uh, veteran was the uh, poor reception uh, at home. Like I landed at Travis Air Force Base. Um, in late October of uh, 1969, and there was a raging anti-war demonstration going on. And the horrible irony for many of us was uh, simply that <laughs> we we were very, uh, I came back from the war very much against the war, um, very disheartened by my country's um, participation in the war. So, um, it it, um, um, it just is. Um, it, it was a an added dimension that uh, I think created more difficulty for the Vietnam vets to um, uh, to heal. A huge and, amount. I mean, I can't I can't act like I've walked an inch in your boots. Uh, but if you compare the reception. Uh, to servicemen and women returning from Vietnam to those that returned from World War II or that returned from tours in many circumstances in the Middle East, just dramatically different. Yes, and I think the, um, 
there's kind of a triad of the uh, psychological consequences of war. Um, there's, of course, the PTSD, which is uh, much more known than the survivor's guilt, um, which as a medic, I had tremendous survivor's guilt. And then there's um, something else that psychologists are um, delineating, and that's uh, moral injury. And it's, um, it has to do with uh, the psychic wreckage uh, uh, from war trauma. And it was like um, that, it was like a light bulb going on when, um, when I first came across some of the writings on, on moral injury. Um, and to answer your question, um, I probably started realizing the most in my uh, 40s. It took, it took until then to really um, a, a lot started to be dredged up from my subconscious. Um, I'm not entirely sure what triggered it, mm. but it, um, it sent me searching and um, uh, able to uh, deal with it more directly and, um, you know, talk with other veterans about it. And um, uh, it was to, to be recognized, to, to be recognized um, by myself, um, uh, it, it really uh, was a big step in uh, being able to uh, to have some concrete healing, and I think uh, I think the beekeeping for me was tremendously healing. So I had some healing going on just by my career choice um, uh, in the Peace Country, um, a fabulous area. Uh, I was fortunate enough to make a living from beekeeping and um, that experience uh, was very healing in and of itself without the conscious um, awareness uh, of the PTSD. Well, this is I mean, this is part of the reason why I found your story to be so compelling and why, why we insisted that you join us here on the show is I mean, it's your, your story in one sentence, uh, obviously not including so many uh, relevant background details is from Vietnam War medic to northern alberta beekeeper and you go wow what an what a fascinating journey so so how do you wind up keeping bees in northern alberta and how does this impact your perspective in the context of service in vietnam well it's um there's an interesting aspect a little known aspect of ptsd and some uh that's sometimes expressed as a hermetic um urge which um uh, so I, I had actually titled part three of the novel um, "Hiding Out," uh, which I was essentially part of me was doing that in the peace country. Um, I'd like to think I did that in a constructive way by raising my family and um, keeping bees for a living. Um, but part of um, part of my um, psyche and my um, path uh, had to do with uh, this hermetic um, urge, I think, that, that often accompanies um, PTSD and uh, also this um, moral injury, which psychologists are talking more about now. But I think the, the first time I opened, saw the inside of a beehive, it was just magical for me. And um, nature itself, um, the Peace Country is such a um, newly opened area for agriculture. And I just found that aspect of it um, just uh, exhilarating. And the 
uh, opening a beehive uh, is a magical experience, um, <laughs> or was for me. Can I tell you, this happened, uh, James, literally just yesterday. I was talking to somebody on the sidewalk, and a, and a bee came around, a pretty good-sized one, and she swatted at it, and then immediately apologized and said, oh, I thought it was a wasp. And she, there, was, there was like this thing. There was like this thing about the beautiful bee, right? She thought it was a wasp, and so she wanted to annihilate it. And she found it was a bee and was immediately apologetic. What is it about the bee? I mean, can, can you take us in for those of us that have never donned the suit and opened up a hive? Can you, wherein does the magic lie? Well, I think um, it, it's a, a, an opportunity. It's a rare glimpse in the inner workings of nature. Um, there's very few things where um, we can go into and observe um, the inner workings unfolding. Like when you, our, our beehives are designed to be able to go into the hive, check on the queen, on the brood nest, um, the stores of the hive, and do it without, a skilled beekeeper can do it without disrupting the hive. And there's also something just very, magical about uh, seeing the boxes fill up with honey and bringing in the pollen, which the bees need for their um, uh, brood rearing. It's their source of protein. And just uh, standing uh, beside a hive and watching the uh, bees come and go is is just fascinating. And I think for a beekeeper, um, so many beekeepers um, have that you know, have that fascination. I bet. Uh, do, do you, I mean, when you look back on it, do you think that your experience keeping bees, um, interacting with these magnificent creatures, I mean, did, did that contribute in a way to you uh, achieving uh, manageable levels of, of mental health and, and ultimately working toward your, your recovery? I mean, would you, would you credit some of that to, to nature, so to speak? Yes. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, I, I think um, uh, nature itself is, um, to me, is very healing. And to be, um, I felt very privileged to be um, able to make a living, uh, living so close to the natural world. Um, we would have uh, at our peak, uh, we had maybe. 50 to 60 different bee yards in different locations, uh, some of them as far as maybe 40 miles uh, away from our, our farm. And uh, some of the farms are literally right on the edge of the wilderness. And it was a, I never got tired of um, driving through the countryside to my bee yards, checking to see which. Um, uh, locations were were doing well and scouting new locations and it was just um, uh, it was very healing yes uh, before I uh, wrap here I want to I want to sort of get back to the I mean the the, the, the premise of the book uh, which is ultimately the the impact of war and the effects it has on on people and on nations and you talk about you write about Agent Orange exposure, uh, and in particular, that for so many, the war never ends. Can you take us into this idea and, and ultimately what you'd like people to be aware of on that front? Yes, um, I think for many, um, because of the trauma, um, the war never ends for some. Um, I think um, 
uh, part two of the novel is titled uh, War Without End. And so that was mostly dealing with um, the psychological repercussions, but also the um, uh, some of the serious injuries, which cause lifelong disabilities, you know, as well as um, lifelong pain. And when I, uh, I had a few months left in the army once I returned from Vietnam and I uh, was assigned to the uh, quadriplegic ward at the Presidio of San Francisco. Um, and uh, it was, um, uh, a, 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 it, it's hard to describe um, uh, the psychic devastation as well as the physical devastation for these young men whose, um, you know, lives were, um, you know, disrupted. And uh, I mean, it's so fascinating to me uh, to uh, listen to Rick Hansen today, um, who's, you know, um, paralyzed, but um, it's a remarkable journey of his um, to um, to cope and thrive the way he's he's done after his injury. But so many of the young men um, back from the war who are paralyzed from the neck down, it was just um, it was just extremely difficult, um, um, and the depression and the um, severity of the injuries, along with the pain, um, it, it truly um, uh, hit home how the war doesn't end for for a lot of us. Well, it's an absolutely powerful book. Uh, James has mentioned already an award winner if people want to learn more about it or order a copy right now of james ballard's poisoned jungle you can learn more at james-ballard.net it's available anywhere great books are sold and my understanding is that you're already working on another yes i've got a um a second novel um uh, the a submittable draft now has <laughs> taken me about five drafts to get it to a submittable point, but it, it's part of a, uh, a trilogy that I, uh, if I don't run out of years, I will try and complete a trilogy. So <laughs> absolutely amazing stuff, James. Well, congratulations on the book. Uh, what an absolutely powerful story. Thank you for being willing to share it with us and we appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. Yeah, uh, my pleasure. Thank you. That's author James Ballard. Again, james-ballard.net. Let me read just a portion of this. So he writes, I mean, this is this is the guy's first novel, but he's writing about Agent Orange and, you know, how the war never ends. Agent Orange exposure has had devastating effects for both American veterans and the people of Vietnam, where the contamination continues being churned up in the soils and stream beds and toxic hotspots from leakage of the dioxins in the defoliants. Not only carcinogenic, the chemicals have caused embedded changes in the genes of subsequent generations. For so many, the war never ends. Then an excerpt from Poisoned Jungle. Powerful stuff. Really appreciate him talking to us about that. Before we wrap, I want to remind you that if your family is looking to get outdoors and you want to make sure that you are properly equipped... The team at Campers Village is ready to go right now. You know they've got three stores in Alberta, but of course they're always open online at campers-village.com. The website's super easy to navigate and they'll ship anywhere in Canada. Most orders over 49 bucks ship for free. 
It's picnic season. It's camping season, hiking season. So whether it's hammocks or dinnerware or navigation aids or sun and bug protection or energy bars or pillows or rooftop tents or, well, you get the point. You will find it all at Alberta's trusted source for backcountry, car camping, fishing, hiking, picnicking, and everything else. If you're going to be enjoying getting outside, make sure you have the equipment you need from our friends at Campers Village at campers-village.com. Also want to remind you, if you'd like to reimagine your outdoor space, you're working with a budget, you've got problems that you need solved, maybe it's drainage. I know I always talk about drainage. That's because in my hyper-awareness, that's the problem we need to solve with our landscaping. So I've talked to Mike from Eden Landscaping about it. He says to me, he goes, you can tell, Jasper, you can tell real talkers we've been in the business of solving problems and then he gets this gleam in his eye and he says you can even tell real talkers if other landscaping companies have not been able to solve their problems those are some of our favorite projects they've been doing it for more than 20 years bringing outdoor spaces to life retaining walls gazebos outdoor kitchens swim spas planter boxes you name it they've done it and they'd love to do it for you at landscapeedmonton.ca that's where you'll find our friends at eden landscaping and of course what can we say other than we feed our own dogs grand dog essentials quality raw food you know you're hearing me talk about the raw beef and the raw chicken and everything else that our dogs moses and monroe have enjoyed but what about alternative protein options if you go to granddog.ca right now you can see their doggy moggy sample pack how about the raw pork what about whole herring what about bison tons of choices and of course their nutritionists are ready to consult with you anytime they want to find a custom plan that makes sure that your dog the loved the beloved four-legged family members in your life get the care and the food that they deserve if you use the promo code real talk at granddog.ca even before it winds up delivered right to your door in Edmonton, Calgary, or Central Alberta, you're going to save 10% off your first-time order, and then you can join their mailing list for exclusive discounts at granddog.ca. The rest of the week, we got a lot of ground to cover here on Real Talk, including tomorrow, curbing extremism. Where does that need to start? We'll talk to Dr. Ubaka Ogbogu about vaccine passports. And then how are two Real Talk sponsors, Bitcoin Well and Kubi Energy, working together towards sustainable crypto mining? Later in the week, we'll talk about tuberculosis. We'll learn about why chefs are boycotting salmon. And we'll talk about building more inclusive communities. Make it a great day. We're gonna wake you up.